0: What do you hope for? I suppose there's all sorts of hope. Some of us hope that OU would make the playoffs, but that was probably crushed last night in a dirty day. What do you hope for? Maybe you hope that the Mavs will make it out of the first round, or maybe the Cowboys will make the playoffs. Maybe you hope the roast is not burnt by the time you get home this morning. Maybe you hope that you will not run out of gas. There's all sorts of things that we might hope for. Paul comments in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13 that Christians should not mourn as do the rest who have no hope. There is a hope that we have as Christians that those who do not know God, who are outside of Christ, do not have. And it is that hope I want to speak, to you with, speak with you today about a hope that we have that someday we are going home to our Father. But I don't simply want to talk to you and talk with you this evening or this afternoon about a general hope of going to heaven. I want us to think about how that hope drives us, how that hope should change us. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to talk to these Christians about the hope that they have of the resurrection and how there is evidence of that hope and how because of that we ought to live changed lives. Notice how Paul begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says this was the message that was preached to you. This was the gospel. The gospel was that there was a man named Jesus who was no man at all, but there was a man, God on earth, and Jesus Christ was his name, and he came to this earth and he lived and he died just as the Scripture said that he would. That he was buried just as the Scripture said that he would be buried but he also was raised. And Paul talks about the fact that he was raised, and you can be certain of that resurrection, because he appeared to all sorts of folks after he was raised out of that tomb. And in fact, he says, there is one occasion which he appeared to more than 500 people all at one time, and some of those people are still alive. That's Paul writes. If there's any confusion about it, you can go talk to them. Paul says some of those folks have died. But many of them are still here. He says, and he even appeared to me in his resurrected state. So 1 Corinthians 15 really becomes an argument about the resurrection and its impact in our lives as Christians and what it ought to mean for us. Notice what he says beginning in verse 12. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we have even been found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul says the hope that we have is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have is that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too we too will be raised. That's the hope that we have. What is hope? Have you ever really defined hope? Uh, we use that term so loosely, just like in my introduction, hoping that the OU would make it to the playoffs. Well, that, I mean, that, who really cares, right? Unless you're the coach of the team. You might hope. But in the grand scheme of things, who, who cares, right? we can hope for all sorts of things, but the idea of hope, the actual idea of hope is the idea that something may happen and that you have a reasonable expectation that you will get what you are anticipating or that you will receive what you are anticipating. So hope is not just saying uh, vaguely as we often say, I hope this is going to happen. I I hope I'm going to have chicken fried steak. I I hope I'm going to have this over here. I hope that my favorite team is going to win. But hope, when we actually sit down and start thinking about hope of significant things, it's the expectation that you are going to receive something and have a good likelihood that you will. I hope that my kids will make good grades. That's a reasonable expectation, and you better be certain that I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I receive that hope, right? And so Paul says this is our hope, that we're going to be raised. And we have a certain realization or a certain expectation, a certain likelihood that it's going to happen. And in fact, Paul says we can be absolutely certain that it's going to happen because Christ was raised. But then Paul makes things difficult for us because he likes to make these little tongue twisters for us. And he says things like if Christ, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised, and he who raised him from the death uh, didn't really raise him. Okay, so it's hard for us sometimes to follow that, but it's actually pretty clear what Paul's saying. If we look at the text again, notice what he says. Beginning in verse 12. If Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do you say that there is no resurrection? That's the central point of the gospel message. That Jesus Christ was raised. And he's just told us what the complete gospel story is. He died for our sins, he buried, was buried, and he was raised. But none of it matters if he's not raised. Because if he wasn't raised, then there's no eternal life. And I'm still dead in my sins, Paul says. Verse 17. So the ultimate piece of this this trilogy that Paul gives us is that Christ was raised. Now obviously if Christ didn't die for our sins, then those sins are still with us. But if he died for our sins and he's still in the tomb, he didn't really conquer death. And so my hope is gone. And so the crux of Paul's argument is Jesus really was raised. And because Jesus Christ was really raised, we still have that hope. And he says, by the way, guys, if Jesus Christ wasn't really raised, not only are we without hope, but he kind of looks at himself and he says, I'm a scoundrel. I'm a manipulator. I'm a blasphemer of God because I've been going around saying this is what God did and God didn't do it if God didn't really raise Jesus from the dead. But he says Christ really did raise from the dead, rise up from the dead by the power of God. And so he says we have this hope, and this hope is here uh, because we've been raised from the dead or because Christ has been raised from the dead. So we have that hope of looking for that opportunity to rise up out of the tomb so quickly what is that going to look like I won't spend a whole lot of time on this portion of, of the idea of the resurrection because I want to talk about what that means for us but briefly let's just kind of notice what Paul says is going to happen verse 20 he says but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by man, came death by man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at His coming. This word gets neat. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished our rule and authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And then notice what he says, those first fruits. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of a body do they have? Verse 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which it is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each one, of the seeds, a body of its own. Skipping ahead to First 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual body is not first but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is earthy, is is the earth from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we are born the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And so Paul says there's a day coming in which we're going to be raised, but our bodies are going to be changed. They're not going to be this physical body that we have currently. We're going to have a spiritual body, a heavenly body. We're going to be changed into something that we can't really anticipate right now. We have no way of knowing because all of our ideas, all of our uh, notions, all of our reality is based in this physical life. If we don't have skin that we can pinch, we don't know what it's like. The Paul says, we're going to be changed. We have to go into the tomb first. But there's an exception he's going to talk about in a second. But we're going to have this heavenly, spiritual body, not one that reflects this, this earthly life. And then notice what he says with regard to the timing. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swelled up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who are going to be dead at Jesus' return. And there are some who are still going to be walking around this face of the earth. But when he comes and that trumpet blast is made and we hear the voice of the archangel, those who are in the tombs are going to be raised up and they're going to have that spiritual, heavenly body and those of us that are still alive are going to be changed. She says in a twinkling of an eye, in an instant, we're going to be changed. And we're going to have this imperishable, spiritual, heavenly body. Folks, that's our hope. And when we put this together with what he says in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be caught up with Jesus forever. Forever. We're going to go home to our father's house. And we're going to get to live in our father's house. And we're not going to have to worry about all the things of this life. We're not going to have to worry about physical needs. We're not going to have to worry about our sins because they've been removed. And we're going to have a different life, a life that really none of us can really imagine. People joke about what it's going to be like in heaven. Different people suppose heaven's going to look like different things. We don't know. But we know this, God's going to be there. And he's going to provide everything for us. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And it's going to be a wonderful place and a wonderful existence. But see, we've talked about the fact that we have this hope because of the resurrection of Christ. And we have the certainty of our own resurrection because Christ has already paved the way. He is that first fruit, Paul says, of being raised from the dead. And we know what that resurrection is going to be like because he's just told us, at least to a certain extent, what it's going to be like. But the main thrust for this morning is what that ought to mean for us today. And so Paul narrows it down to just one little verse in this chapter. Verse 58. Therefore. Therefore, the conclusion, the impact of that hope we have of the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul says the way that this hope of the resurrection ought to change us is it ought to create in us a heart that is steadfast, a heart that's not going to give up, a heart that's going to stick with it. Even when times get tough, even when there are trials, even when there's hardships, even when there is pain in our life, we are going to be steadfast because we're able to look to this hope that we have. Notice the contrast that Paul makes in this verse. He says, if Christ hasn't really been resurrected from the dead, your hope is vain. Your hope is worthless. And that idea of vain means to be empty, without substance. If Christ hasn't been raised, Paul says, all of it is vain but he gets down to verse 58 and he says, because we know Christ was really raised and we know that someday we are going to either be raised or changed in the twinkling of an eye to be able to have that heavenly body, that spiritual body, that imperishable body, that immortal body. He says, because of that, be steadfast, immovable, Don't let people push you off of your faith. But then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor or your toil is not in vain. It is not empty. It is not worthless in the Lord. God wants our faith to be more than lip service. He wants our hope to be more than lip service. He wants it to be a motivator. He wants it to be something that moves us to action. He wants it to be something that creates change in our lives with doing something about it. Why do you act? Why do you do the things that you do? Somebody in Bible class this morning used the word obligation. Sometimes we do things because we feel obligated. I have to do that, so I might as well get it done. Once or twice every two or three weeks, I look at the grass, and I think somebody's obligated to cut that. I wish my kids would look at their Legos on the floor and say, somebody ought to clean that up. So sometimes we're moved out of obligation. But here Paul is saying we are moved out of our hope. That is to say we are moved by our hope. We look forward to the good things that are coming, and therefore it prompts us to action, to working in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then do you notice what he says? Knowing that your toil is not vain. It is not empty. It is not worthless in the Lord. What does that mean? It says it's not vain. It is not worthless in the Lord. There are things I do. There are things you do. I suppose you look back on it and you think, why did I do that? It didn't get me anywhere. It didn't achieve the goals that I was pursuing. We live in a science-based culture and society here in the United States. Have you ever heard someone use the word data? You have data to back that up? It's good to have data. I I don't have a problem with data. But sometimes if all you do is look at data, you're going to say, why am I doing this? Because I don't have the data to back it up. (laughs) When it comes to our work in the Lord, we do things because it's pleasing to God, and sometimes I don't get to measure that. Sometimes I don't see a quantifiable number or a quantified number to say, oh, yes, I achieved 50% increase in joy this morning. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't achieve 90% increase in brotherly love this morning. But you see, those things are what God wants and expects of us as Christians. Now, sometimes there are things that I can measure, and I can quantify. But as a Christian living by faith, and as a Christian living by hope, I do things because they are pleasing to God and. Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, when you labor, working, serving God, your labor, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I answer to God. And the work that I do is seen by God. The attitude I have is seen by God. Regardless of whether or not anyone else sees it and congratulates me or sends me a card or bakes me a cake or pats me on the back or gives me an attaboy, my toil is not in vain in the Lord. And I work to please God. And I work because I have that hope that at some point the Lord's coming back. And those who are in the Lord get to go home with Him. And that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that ought to motivate us. And that's the hope that makes us steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If you're here this morning and you need to become a Christian by being united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, so that you too will have that hope of a resurrection and an eternity with God, or if you have other needs, whatever those needs are, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.